You can be finding the book of Esther, chapter 3. We'll take us a little while to get there, but we'll eventually end in Esther, chapter 3. I'm going to be very practical with you tonight, preach on the home. I've preached quite a bit on the home here lately, but um, I think some of you are aware that every once in a while, I, throughout the year, I preach meetings or Bible conferences where I am assigned the subject or the text um, and, and oftentimes preparing sermons for those meetings that, that I end up never preaching here. Um, back in uh, November, I think it was, uh, we were up in Buffalo in a, in a couple's meeting and I think that I preached, I believe, five times on, on the home and marriage and, and all was new sermons. I preached two of those here, but three of them I, I, I'd never preached here. Well, man, it's a lot of work to prepare a sermon and end up, you know, only one time. And, and this seems, it's, it's just it's hard what it is, to be honest with you. And then um, in, in January, I, I was over at Brother Knox's, and uh, he had all of the men preaching on women in the New Testament. And uh, I preached here on Anna. And I preached over there in Anathan. He had me preach on Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I've never preached that here. And I don't know that I, I ever will. And, and so things happen in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll be up in the D.C. area uh, preaching on family. I will. She won't be um, preaching on family up there for a couple of nights. And, and so, so it kind of goes that way. And then uh, Parker and I were at Rock of Ages headquarters last week or the week before. And... Uh, Dr. Ellis had asked me to come in and speak at a, a minister's training um, symposium. Uh, some pastors and missionaries are there. And he asked me to do two 45-minute lectures on overcoming negativity in the ministry. And my wife chuckled to that. She said, you haven't overcome it. Uh, so how are you going to speak on it? You know, but, you know, I did the best I could. But I, um, I worked on two sermons and, and spoke on overcoming negativity and uh, two sermons that I will probably never preach here. And, and so it's, it's just uh, some, sometimes those happen. And, and so tonight I'm going to give you something that I've given somebody else uh, in a marriage um, conference. And, and, and so tonight it's home. I will apply this primarily to marriage, uh, but it really could be applied to relationships all across the board. While I'm just kind of warming up, Brother Luke, I could take a little bit more monitor if we can do that without messing the house up, while we're just kind of adjusting that, and just a little bit more volume for me. And I want to make sure that I hear myself, make sure that I agree with everything that I say tonight. And so if you can help me with that, that, that'll help me. It, it, um, uh, we, have a, we have a young couple that's getting married. Where were they at? Uh, get, get married. Y'all yeah, right here. They're getting married uh, here in a few, uh, I don't know, how, how many days? How many days? 48 days. You get married in 48 days. And, and you remember when you were all in love and mushy and, and stars in the eyes and water on the brain? And you, you remember that? And I mean, he is Mr. Wonderful and she is just, I mean, she is just, I mean, uh, the cat's meow and perfect two, per finally, God put two perfect people together in this perfect marriage. And then they get married. And... Uh, <laughs> And then they discover, you know, what, what did I do? 
Ooh, I didn't my mama tell me. And, uh, and, and, but, but they just, they just, you know, young couples, they just think, well, this is going to be perfect, going to be perfect. Eventually, you know, the honeymoon wears off and, and you get used to it. And, and, and every marriage is eventually going to have problems. Eventually. Every marriage in here, you have had problems. Now, some of you have more serious problems and more problems than others, but you're going to have problems. There is no couple that has ever said, Pastor, can we meet? And sat down in my office to tell me, I just want you to know we're doing great. <laughs> uh, just thought I'd meet with you and tell you that our marriage is perfect and we have no problems at all. Every time that somebody calls and says, can we meet? It's a problem. It is, all right? I, I just I don't know what the problem is going to be, but there is going to be some negativity in that meeting. And, and, and again, again, I don't know that we have any marriage in our church that is on the rocks. I, I hope not. Uh, but we all have experienced problems in a marriage. And part of being together and, and being peaceful together and still being in love together is learning how to deal with problems with one another. Because... What you discover is we are flawed. I, I am imperfect. My wife is imperfect. Everybody's imperfect. And then when you put two imperfect people together, I not only have to deal with my issues, but I have to deal with your issues as well. And I don't know why this is, but a lot of times we have more grace to those outside of the marriage than we do to those inside the marriage. We, we tend to forgive and have patience and understanding with the people that are distant from us more so than the people that are close to us. It's almost as if we have a different set of rules of engagement within the marriage as we do outside of the marriage. And, and you realize that you didn't marry Mr. Wonderful. And you didn't marry Miss Wonderful. You, you didn't. You missed it on that. But now here you are. You're married. And now you have to learn to cope and to be, be together. And so tonight, I want to talk to you about the problem with problems. The problem with dealing with problems. And I'm going to show you an example tonight, very, very practical. I'm going to show you an example of a man who has a wife and she has a problem. And I'm going to show you how he dealt with that problem in his marriage. It is the most unlikely role model for marriage that you could think of in the Bible. But before I get there, I, I want to give you a couple of um, of, of admonitions in what not to do in problems. And then I'm going to our, our story. And so, so just, just if you want to write this down, just four or five negative admonitions. And I, I, I state these negatively. And, 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 but, but here's the first, first admonition that I would give you. When problems arise in a relationship, in a home, in a marriage, parent and child... When problems arise, number one, do not ignore the problem. Do not ignore the problem. Look, look at 2 Samuel 13 with me for a minute. We, we'll get to Esther in just a minute. But look at 2 Samuel chapter 13, and I'll give you an example of what I, I'm talking about. 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse number 20. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, talking about Tamar. Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. 
But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Now you probably know what's happening in this chapter, don't you? Earlier in the chapter, Amnon has violated his sister Tamar. Tamar has evidently moved into Absalom's house. That's another brother. And Absalom is seething with rage against his brother Amnon. David is aware of what has happened in his home. And in the remainder of the chapter, Absalom begins to plot his revenge. He's got to figure out a way that I'm going to get Amnon by himself and I am going to murder Amnon for what he did to Tamar. And the plot that he comes up with is he wants to invite all of his brothers, all the king's sons, to his sheep shearing farm that is in Belhazor. So he asked for David to send all of the sons down. And David is hesitant. I think David is aware that there is something afoul that, 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 that is going to happen. But, but Absalom keeps pushing. And finally, David relents and sends all of the sons down out of Jerusalem, down away from, away from where he's at. And, and they get down there. And Absalom uses that as a ploy, gets Amnon away from his father where he's protected. And he has some men murder Amnon. And then all the other king's sons, they flee because they don't know what, what is getting ready to happen. So here's what you have in 2 Samuel chapter 13. You got a lot of trouble in a home. What you have is you have a son who's a rapist, a daughter who has been violated. You have another son that is filled with rage. And now you have even murder in the family. This is a lot of trouble in the home. David knows all about this. But I want you to notice something in verse 23. It came to pass after two full years. It has been two years since the incident with Amnon and Tamar has happened. And David has not done anything about the problems in his home. There is no punishment for Amnon. There is, we don't know if there's any care for Tamar. There is, there, there's no abandonment of Absalom. For two years, he has done absolutely nothing. And, and had David taken judgment into his own hands and dealt with the issues that are in his own family, then perhaps Absalom would not have plotted this murder for two full years. Yeah. David is upset, but for some reason he does not address the problem. Problems don't go away with time. Right. Right. Time doesn't heal everything, all right? What happens over time is resentment and bitterness and, and foul spirits come up. You have to address the problem. I am well aware that in a church setting that a person can get offended over something and you not even know that they're offended. And they sit on that for years. And then something else offends them and something else offends them. And when they come with this offended spirit, soon everything becomes an offense. Everything becomes an offense and it just builds and it builds and it builds. So don't ignore the problem. Then secondly, don't downplay the problem. Come back to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'll show you an example of this. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 8. You'll know exactly where we're at. 1 Samuel 1 and verse 8. Then said Elkanah her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? 
And why is thy heart grieved? And he should have stopped. But he just had to say the next thing. Am not I better to thee than ten sons? And it has to go down in history as the dumbest thing that a man has ever said to his wife. I mean, give the man a ribbon for being so stupid as to suggest to his wife that he is better to her than ten sons. Now here's what you have. You have Elkanah married to Hannah and Penina. Penina is in the home and she, she is pumping one out every year. And, and here is poor Hannah that can't have any children and she is barren and her heart is crushed. And she doesn't feel worthy for her husband. She doesn't have any fulfillment. There's no joy. You watch her pray on the temple at Shiloh and her spirit is broken. Yeah. And somehow Elkanah thinks that by telling her it's not really that big of a deal, you're kind of getting worked over out over something that, that may not be that important. You might be making too much of this. Don't be so emotional. He thinks he's helping. Huh? He actually compounded the problem by marrying fertile myrtle that just keeps having baby after baby after baby. And, 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 and now he's trying to sympathize with her by downplaying her problem. Isn't it good enough just to be married to me? That's what he said. Huh? He may not feel the pain of her barrenness, but he ought to try a little harder. Huh? He's trying to downplay the problem. Now, now here, here's the problem, guys. All of you men, every one of us, we're logical. If there is a problem, tell me the problem, I'll fix it. I'll fix it right now. I don't care what the problem, I can fix the problem. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this, we're going to do this and that. Done. What else? Right? Fix the problem. Don't need to cry about it. We don't need to have four conversations. Just a, a fix the, a take care of the problem. Here's what I have discovered. She don't want the problem fixed. She wants to talk about it. That's what we want to do. We don't care. Listen, your wife does not care if the problem gets fixed or not. She just wants to be able to talk about it. Right. Yeah. Am I? Yes, sir. Go ahead and say amen. Don't be afraid of your wife. <laughs> don't, don't downplay the problem. But then don't overreact to the problem. Right. Look at Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, look at verse 24. It came to pass, by the way, in the end that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. You remember Moses had to flee Egypt because he killed that Egyptian. He's in exile for 40 years. While he's in exile, he meets Jethro. Then he meets Jethro's daughter, Zipporah. They get married. They have a son. And they name the son Gershon. 
And now God has called Moses back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh and to be the deliverer and, and, uh, of Israel. But along the way, a problem comes up in that he has not had Gershon, his son, circumcised. God has initiated circumcision as the sign of the covenant with the people of Israel. And for some reason, I don't know why, Moses has neglected that. I have no reason, I have no idea why. And, and in verse number 24, where it says God sought to kill him, to be honest with you, I'm not sure if that means God meant to kill Moses or Gershon. You, you Bible scholars figure that out. But Moses corrects this. He, he, he circumcises his son, and Zipporah gets upset. She takes the foreskin, she throws it at Moses' feet and says, you are a bloody man. It is at that point that Zipporah took her, home, her son and she went home to her father, Jethro. Now I'm going to tell you what that is. That is an overreaction to a problem. She made it bigger than what it needed to be. She took something that wasn't major and she made it a major issue. Moses is just trying to be obedient to God, but she got in the way of him doing his duty to God and she got all been out of shape with it. She goes back to her father. They do come back together. I don't know if their marriage is ever the same again. Because when Jethro reunites them, there's not much said about them after this. And I wonder, I wonder if she blew up a marriage over this one incident. Yeah. And can I put it in context for you? Moses didn't have an affair. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like Moses committed adultery. Sure. He has neglected something that's important spiritually. You understand, I'm not downplaying that, but, but, but her overreaction is a bigger problem to the thing than the thing that she is reacting to. We do that a lot of times, don't we? Something becomes almighty important to us, and we can literally blow up a relationship over something that really is not that big of a deal. Don't overreact to problems. And then, don't take advantage of problems. Come to Genesis chapter 27. You still with me? Very practical tonight. Very practical. You shout on Wednesday. Genesis 27. Don't take advantage of problems. Here's the story of Rebecca teaching Jacob how to lie. Teaching her son how to deceive Isaac. Isaac is old. He has announced to Esau that he's going to give him the family blessing. Esau has gone out. He is preparing a meal, and, and, and Jacob is going to deceive him. She, he is Rebecca's favorite, so she hatches this plan. Let's go into Isaac, and you're going to put on goat skin uh, so that you smell like the outdoorsman. You're going to feel like the outdoorsman. I'm going to prepare some venison like Esau would. And we're going to deceive your father into giving you the family blessing instead of Esau. None of that would be possible except for one problem that Isaac had. Look at it in verse 1. It came to pass that when Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. Rebecca is counting on the fact that she can exploit that. His eyesight is so dim that he cannot tell the difference between Jacob and Esau. And we are going to exploit that by dressing Jacob up like Esau. So what she does is she takes advantage 
of Isaac. She exploits him. And can you imagine what the marriage is like after that? How would he ever trust her again? It causes irreparable harm in the marriage because she took advantage of his problems. And you cannot take the problems, the fears, the insecurities, the weaknesses of somebody that you're married to and use that to browbeat them and get back at them. That's manipulation. That's bully tactics is what that is. And what you do is you destroy trust that way and destroy trust destroys intimacy. I lived with my wife for 33, 2, 1, 30, 34, 32. We've lived for, for 32 years. We've been married. I'm going to tell you something. I know her weaknesses. And unfortunately, she knows all of mine too. Every one of them. Huh? And can you imagine what kind of relationship we would have if I used her weaknesses to try to get my way? Or if she used my way? That's exploitation is what that is. Don't take advantage of problems. And then fifthly, don't complicate problems. I think about Sarah. Sarah gets a bad rap, I think. But I think that Sarah was a good woman for Abraham. It's just that she didn't have as much faith as Abraham. But it would be kind of tough to live with a man who is called the friend of God. I mean, how would you like it if your husband made it in Hebrews chapter 11? How would you like to have to live with that guy? There is some pressure to that. So Sarah's problem is that she doesn't have as much faith as Abraham and she grows impatient waiting for the promise of God. And so she devises this plan for Abraham to go into Hagar, have a child by her, then we're going to adopt that child and we're going to help God out that way and, and that way we will have the seed. And Abraham, Abraham should have helped her believe. He should have helped her wait on God, but he very foolishly went along with her to get along. And when he did, did he ever complicate things? Because now I've got strife between Isaac and Ishmael. And I got strife between Sarah and Hagar. And I got strife between Sarah and Abraham. And when you participate in somebody's problem, all you're doing is complicating things. When you step outside of God's will just to keep some peace, you are complicating things. When you get ahead of God, you are complicating things. You know, you, you can have financial problems in your home and you can make them worse. You can have marital problems in your home and you can make them worse. So don't complicate problems. So here's what I'm saying. Every, every marriage, every home is going to have problems. So how do you deal with those problems? Now go to Esther chapter 3 with me. Esther chapter 3. All right, Here, here's what I wanted to go to tonight. And I'm going to show you an example of a man that dealt with his wife's problem. Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3 gives us probably the most intriguing marriage in the Bible. It's very unique. There is no other marriage that is formed exactly like this one. And in most cases, this would not be a marriage that God would approve of. But in this case, he orchestrated it. It is an unlikely marriage between a Hebrew woman and a Persian king. Two different people, two different backgrounds, different religions, different social statuses. Here's the story. King Ahasuerus reigns over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, most powerful man in the world. His wife's name is Vashti, and she has publicly embarrassed him. Now, he's not innocent. 
And that he has all of those drunken princes there and he wants her to come in and showcase her beauty, perhaps in a lewd manner. But you cannot disrespect your husband and embarrass him publicly, especially in that culture. He is humiliated before all the princes and before all of the VIPs. So here's what he does. He holds an emergency session with his cabinet and they all advise you have to get rid of her. Now here's the reason why. If you don't get rid of her, this is going to open the door to all the feminists. And we might start having trouble with our wives too. You're going to make an example out of her. You're going to put her in a place. Because if you don't, all of our wives are going to start acting too big for their britches. So you're going, to have, you're going to have to make an example just to remind these women of their rightful place in the kingdom. So Ahasuerus publicly divorces Vashti and begins the search for a new queen. They bring all of these virgins in and as soon as Esther comes in, the search is over. She is beautiful. She is graceful. She is charming. She, she is everything that a man would want in a wife and everything that a king would want in a queen. And so the story romance, it begins because what girl doesn't dream of being swept off her feet by a prince, in this case a king, moving to a palace with servants and jewelry and clothes and all of this. This is what happens. He could have any woman in the kingdom, but he chose her and she could have married a peasant, but she ends up marrying the king. It is the stuff that fairy tales are made up of. But then we come to Esther 3, and we discover that Esther has a problem. And she has brought that problem into the marriage. It's not a moral problem. It's not a sinful problem. But it is a significant problem. She has a secret that she brought into the marriage, and she didn't tell him about it before they got married. Her problem is that she is Jewish. She is part of an exiled group of people who have been separated from their homeland, deported to another land, and the secret has been kept from her husband, but it is going to explode on her. Here's how. Look at Esther 3 and verse 6. He, Haman, thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai, Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. That is a problem. Yeah. Haman is Ahasuerus' right-hand man. He has taken personal offense that this man Mordecai will not bow down to him. He's a petty little man. He is full of self-importance. And when men won't bow down and lick his boots, he throws a temper tantrum and he goes on a tirade against all Jews. And so he goes to Hazarus and he makes up this story that all of these Jews are a rebellious factor in your kingdom and they need to be wiped out. He paints this very gray, dark picture of these Jews that are supposedly revolting and there is such distress in the kingdom. And finally, he, he manipulates the king to sign a decree that on a particular day that all of these Jews are going to be killed. Right. And when he signs that decree, look at verse 15. The post went out being hastened by the king's commandment. And the decree was given in Shushan the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city... Shushan was perplexed. I think that some people knew that Esther is a Jew. Her husband has just signed her death warrant. 
What Esther has done is she has brought a situation into the marriage without telling her husband. She kept a secret from him, and now it has caused him to create even more problems for himself and for the entire kingdom. And the city is perplexed. They're thinking, what is he doing? What Does he not know that his own wife is a Jew? Does he not understand that the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be reversed? Once it's a law, it is a law. Maybe he's tired of Esther and he's looking for a way to get rid of her. Maybe that's what it is. Why, why would he do this? And, and by the way, if you think you have problems in your home, think about Esther. Her little problem, she's a Jew, has just become a very big problem. Because now her secret not only threatens her marriage, her secret threatens her very life. And in the rest of the book, here's what you're going to read about. Ahasuerus, the husband, he's going to have to deal with her problem. What is he going to do? How are you going to navigate this problem that has exploded in your marriage? Five or six things. Write it down. Number one, he was accessible. He was accessible. Look, look at chapter 5. and Look at verse 1. It came to pass on the third day. That Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. Here's what happens. Mordecai finds out about this decree. He immediately calls for Esther and says, you're going to have to intervene with the king on our behalf. And at first, if you read it, she is reluctant. But she finally accepts that this is, my, this is my lot. I'm going to have to go into the king, and I'm going to have to talk about this problem. It is a very simple point, but I think it's very important. If you are going to navigate problems in your marriage, you have to be available in the marriage. Right. When, when, when the Persian king... There's people coming to him. There's people with all kinds of requests. But when his wife comes to him, he has to drop all of that and say, I am dealing with you right now. When she needed to talk to him about her problem, he was there for her when she needed him to be. Now that's too simple, isn't it? But you can't be so busy. And so preoccupied in your own little world that nobody can talk to you. Whether it is watching football or strolling through the all-important Facebook. Or working 90 hours a week. Or out on the golf course. You, you can be present and still give off the impression that you don't want to be bothered. You can give that impression to your kids. That they're always a bother, always interrupting whatever it is that you're doing. So don't be so busy that you're not accessible to your kids and to your spouse and to one another. And isn't it amazing that some people are more interested in the lives of friends that are not really friends on Twitter and Facebook than they are interested in the lives of the people sitting right in front of them? Yeah. Be, 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 I sat in the barbershop the other day, and I think I forget now. There was 10 or 11 guys there because they got there late. And, and, and out of 11 guys, there's nine of them right there glued, glued to their cell phone. 
We have become addicted to it is what we have become. Huh? We can't even, we can't even go to dinner without somebody checking their phone and checking the beep and the ding and the whistle and, and, and Instagram or whatever it is. And we can't have conversations anymore. Can't communicate anymore. So be accessible. And then secondly, be approachable. Look at verse number two. It was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Now, now they're married, but there's protocol. He's the Persian king. And, and when you approach the king, you didn't just didn't just march into the throne room. You had to be invited into the throne room. And if a person barges into the throne room and the king does not accept them, that person could actually be executed. So when it says that Ahasuerus stretched out his scepter to Esther, he's basically saying, come on in. That's what he's doing. Now, now guys, I, 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 I don't recommend <laughs> that you take that particular approach. Sitting on your throne and, you know, holding out your golden scepter, giving her a signal that she can come. I, I, I don't think, I, I know it wouldn't fly in our house, but, but maybe you can try it. But he sees her standing there and he doesn't ignore her. He doesn't hope that she will go away while he's watching SportsCenter. <laughs> he doesn't say, take a hike, get lost. No, he welcomes her into his presence and makes her feel like I have all the time in the world to talk to you. Because you can be accessible, but not be approachable. You can be so content, Chris, ain't nobody want to talk to you. Right? I mean, I mean, they know you're going to blow up. So why even have the conversation? Afraid to say anything to you because who knows what mood you are in today. You can be there and everybody else wish that you wasn't there. So, so be approachable. If your spouse, if your spouse needs to talk and when communication breaks down, marriage is over. Without communication, all you have is two people living in the same room. That's all that you have. All right. But, but, but if, there, if there is no communication, then there is no intimacy. And when your spouse, husband or wife has a problem, can they approach you? Can they talk to you without you making it a bigger issue? Can your child come and talk to you? If you are not approachable to your children, they won't tell you what's going on in their life, but they will tell their friends at school. And when they have an issue in their life, I want them to tell me to so be approachable. And then in verse three, be amicable. Look at verse three. Then said the king unto her, what wilt thou queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom before he even hears what her problem is he offers her half of the kingdom I don't I, I can see it on your face something's bothering you I don't know what the issue is but I want you to know ahead of time you can't ask for too much of me you see that 
He is a pagan king. He, he, he's not a role model. Okay? We wouldn't have a Hazlitt come in and talk to us about marriage. We understand that. Divorcing bastard, that's not a good look for him. I, I understand he's a pagan king, but he shows her, he shows her whatever it is that's on your heart, whatever you need to talk to me about, I'm an open book. And whatever you're getting ready to ask me, you can't ask me for too much. He's not, he's not virtuous, but I'll tell you what he did know. He knew how to make his wife feel comfortable. Now maybe when he hears the problem, maybe he's going to blow up at her. But for now, for now he is kind to her. He can see on her countenance that something bothers her. And he wants to reassure her that whatever is wrong, I am there for you. Right. Right. You know when you have to have a difficult conversation with somebody, how you play it over in your mind? This is the way I'm going to say it. And then you play in your mind what they're going to say back. And depending on what they say back, then, then I'm going to formulate my response. And you play over in your mind Different ways that it go, and you, you kind of lay out a plan of attack. Well, Esther, Esther's played this out in her mind. Here's the different ways that the king could respond, and if he responds this way, this is how I'm going to answer, and if he approaches it this way, then, then, then she asked for three days to fast and pray as to how to approach him. And if he says, why didn't you tell me I was, you were Jewish, then this is what I'm going to answer. If he says, if he says, do you have any other secrets you're keeping from me? Well, well, this is how I'm going to reply. If he says, I've already signed the law, there's nothing I can do. Well, this is going to be my reply. Right. Here's what she never expected. Whatever you want up to half the kingdom. Yeah. She has not planned a response for that. Yeah. He has set her mind at ease. I don't know what the problem is, but I promise you, it is not too big that me and you can't handle the problem. The problem will never be more important than our relationship. Whatever is rocking our marriage, our marriage is going to survive it because I'm telling you, I'm on your side. Right. Hmm. Good Number four, be appropriate. Come, come to chapter seven. Still with me? So look at verse one. Very practical, very practical. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. The king said again to Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, what is thy petition, Queen Esther? It should be granted thee. What is thy request? It should be performed even to the half of the kingdom. So Esther says, I want to prepare a banquet. You, you and, and Haman, and, 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 and then I'm going to tell you what, what I need. So, so, so Ahasuerus is intrigued. And so he says, oh, that'd be great. You, you fixed, yeah, we'll have a banquet. And by this time, he is dying of curiosity. Dying. It's like when you ask your wife, what's wrong? She says, nothing. We know that's not the answer, correct? We just know that this is a game we have to play. We have to pull it out of you, okay? We understand, right? He, he's dying of curiosity. But it's interesting, he hasn't backed down on his promise. Because for the second time, he says, it should be performed even to the half of thy kingdom. So here's how Esther approaches it. Look at verse 3. Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, if it please the king... Let my life be given me at my petition and my people to my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I'd help Matan, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. 
Then the king of Ahasuerus answered and said to Esther the queen, Who is he? Where is he? That does presume in his heart to do so. And Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. Here's what Esther says. She says, King, I am of a people, a race, a nationality that has a death wish upon their head. We have an adversary, and he is seeking to do us great harm. He wants to exterminate us. And Ahasuerus said, who? Tell me his name. Where's he at? Do I know him? Who? And Esther says, um, Haman, this wicked man, Haman. Verse 7, and the king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath went into the palace garden. And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Ahasuerus gets furious. But this is very important. Not at Esther. He is angry at the problem. Haman realizes he has stepped in it big time. And he starts begging Esther to save his life. I don't know if he knew that Esther was related to Mordecai. I, I don't know. But when he hears that she is Jewish, he realizes he is in some big trouble. And the king, he steps out to the garden. He, he's got to breathe. He's coming back in in just a minute. But for right now, I'm going to go out and blow off some steam and figure out how we're going to deal with this. But when you find out that someone or something is attacking the marriage or the husband or the children or the marriage, the appropriate response is to go on the war path, not against them, but against the thing that threatens the relationship. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't minimize her concerns. He does not ignore the problem. But here's what he does. He takes it upon himself to make her problem his problem. Oh, Haman, you've attacked my wife. You might as well just attacked me. Because you're going to get the same thing either way. He becomes emotionally invested in her problem. In every relationship, when a problem is admitted, your response to that problem determines if they ever bring another problem to you again. If she comes to you and says, we need to talk, and you fly off the handle, it'll be a long time before she comes back to say, we need to talk. If he comes to you and confesses to an addiction and you have the wrong reaction. He'll never confess anything to you again. When that child comes to you with quivering lips and tears in his eyes and says, Daddy, can we talk? Be careful how you respond. The enemy is not the spouse. The enemy is the sin, the curse, Satan, the temptation, the weakness. Be analytical. Look at verse 7 again. 
The king arising from the bank of the wine of his wrath went into the palace garden. Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. He has just heard the most devastating news that he could hear. He's instantly filled with rage, but he doesn't want to just blow up. He needs a minute to think about it. So he goes out into the garden to think about it. And, and, and when he does, when he does, Haman goes in to Esther and begins to beg for her life. In fact, verse 8. The king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine. And Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. She has gone into the bedroom. She's on the bed. Haman has gone in there. He has fallen on the bed and he's probably halfway on her, grabbing her feet or whatever, begging her to plead for him. And Ahasuerus walks in. Bad timing. Bad timing. And Ahasuerus walks in. And he sees Haman draped over his wife. Oh, that's how you want to play this? Yeah. Do you, you really? Yeah. Then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in the house? And the word went out of the king's mouth and they covered Haman's face. Put a hood over his head. We just happen to have a gallows already built, brand new. Let's try it out. Now I want you to think about Esther tonight. I want you to think about it. Well, Mordecai is telling her, you got to go in and talk to the king. Three days fasting and prayer. How's he going to take this? I've created a problem. And it's complicated things for him. And it's not his fault. It's mine. How's he going to deal with this? To this scene. She has gone from the most insecure person in the kingdom to the most secure. There's no doubt in her mind where she stands with the king. He not only would give me half the kingdom, he will not let anything or anyone harm now, again, I, I don't suggest, guys, that you go out and look for somebody to beat up to impress your wife that you will protect her. I, I, I don't think that's a good idea. But every woman wants a man that would defend her honor. She just went from, I'm not sure if our marriage will survive this, to I've never been closer to him before. And people in life don't need security when things are going good. They already feel good about themselves. They already feel good about the situation. But when they make a mistake, when they create a problem, when something has been exposed in their life, that's when they feel vulnerable, insecure, unsure. And that's where you have the opportunity to give them security that they so desperately need with affection. It's not romantic of a hazardous to kill Haman, but it was very reassuring to her. Now, do you know the rest of the story? I've got to be done. I've got to be done. You know the rest of the story? Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus teaches us how to deal with problems that come to your home. However, he has not fixed the problem. There is still a death, death command out there. And the law of the Medes and Persians could not be changed. 
He cannot reverse that law. So in chapter 8, Ahasuerus can't fix the problem. What he is going to do is he is going to give her the tools and help her fix the problem. Since the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be broken, Esther asks him to make another law that supersedes the previous one. This law gives the Jews the right to defend themselves. And so what he does is he gives his ring to Mordecai, sets Mordecai over the house of Haman, writes a brand new law that says the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. Ahasuerus cannot fix the problem himself, but he gives her everything that she needs to handle the problem. He makes the changes that are necessary. He becomes her advocate. He works with her to find a remedy. His wife is in serious trouble. He will move earth and heaven to stand beside her and do whatever it takes to fix it. This may cost a lot of money. This may cost me political capital in the kingdom. This may cost me everything, but you won't have to deal with this alone. He can't fix the problem. All that he did was write the decree and sign the decree. And sometimes your spouse may have a problem that they have to deal with themselves. And all that you can do is be by their side to support them. If you're addicted to pills tonight, I can't fix that. And your spouse can't fix it either. But what they can do is stand with you with accountability, account, whatever it takes. You're going to have to handle this. But I'm going to stand here with you. You'll not have to deal with it yourself. Now, I don't think that anybody in here tonight has a dark secret you've never told your spouse. I, I don't know. But it could be that somebody in here, you carry a very heavy burden. And you wish that you didn't have to carry it alone. And Ahasuerus gives us an example of how to take a spouse, a child, anybody in a relationship that brings problems, serious problems in. And how are you going to deal with those problems? Problems arise in every relationship. Anna, come to the piano. Relationships are destroyed over big things. Relationships are destroyed over little things. And, and every, every emotion creeps into a relationship. Every emotion creeps in. And no matter, no matter how long you've been married, you ought to want to strengthen that bond. And I'm going to tell you something tonight. You listen to me tonight, okay? Does your relationship with your spouse, with your brother, with your sister, does it affect your relationship with God? Well, 1 John 2 says that it does. And I'm going to tell you something tonight. If you are not right with one another, you are not right with God. You try to pray. You try to worship, you try to grow in your relationship with God. I'm going to tell you something tonight. If you're not willing to let go of offenses and bitterness and whatever it is in your heart, you, you can mask it, you can say, no, I'm not. But if you're not willing to let it go and repair those relationships, I'm going to tell you what it's going to do. That poison is going to spread to other relationships is what it's going to do. Let's bow our heads tonight.